Let's pick up where we left off last week. We've been talking about this identity crisis. And we're building this brick upon brick. And I know some of this maybe is not new information, but we've got to recap it as we lay the foundation of this because it's, it's so, I don't know what you call it, ironic, funny, whatever the case may be. But I talk to multiple pastors, usually, you know, in a, in a month's span. I'll probably talk to half dozen to a dozen of them. They'll call me. We're just chit-chatting, catching up. I've got friends that are in ministry all over the country in different parts of the world, and we'll catch up. And there's this one underlying theme that happens to be going through the midst of them, and that is just like, what do you call the church? What does the church look like today? Or what should it look like? We know what it looks like. But I mean, literally right now in Afghanistan, everybody knows what's going on over there. They are being killed. It's horrible. Horrible. And yet they're still meeting. They're still getting together. They know every time they go, they are putting their lives on the line and they don't care. You know, I've got friends that are, have been missionaries over in that part of the world or have connections to people in that part of the world and that's literally what's going on now they are being hunted down but this isn't new this has been going on since forever the israelites were hunted down the followers of christ were hunted down and we have been afforded a freedom here to get together and worship however we want we we, there are no limitations we can do what we want and because of that we take things for granted and that is where the church is today we have gotten so comfortable and so complacent that we have just begun to take these things for granted. Understanding what being a born-again believer could cost you. In parts of the world right now, they are finding it out. It's sad. But you know what? When they're willing to lay down their lives, their reward is in heaven. There are things that we would not give up today. Circumstantial, earthly things that we would have a hard time parting with for the sake of the gospel if we're just being honest and yet they're willingly laying down their lives we have a different perspective when you are in the midst of trial and in the midst of all the problems that are going on it's that that part there that rough patch that really makes you grow you discover who you are as we get a look at the identity of what the church is we got to understand this is that the identifying marks of an of a group is set apart by how they behave what they say and ultimately what they believe And what they say and how they behave are 100% dictated by what they believe. Let me give you an example of this. If you meet an active Muslim, okay, there are nominal Muslims and there are radical Muslims. A nominal Muslim is somebody who just kind of wants to get along. And they believe in, in Allah and they believe in the Quran, but they don't really want... To follow all of the teachings because it doesn't really fit the way they want to live their lives. In other words, in peace. They're not looking for war, they're looking for peace. Christianity has that same thing. We believe in Jesus and God and the Bible and church might be important, but I can worship anywhere. I can worship at the lake. I can worship in the woods. I don't need any of that kind of stuff. And I don't want God dictating to me necessarily every aspect of my life. Just certain aspects. I'll let him like major on the majors but the minor stuff i'm going to call the shots i'm going to do what i want but then you've got the radical muslim that knows that if you are not a follower of allah you know what they call them infidels you know what they do with infidels they kill them you've got two dichotomies of beliefs that are going on here and so what will happen is and I, i have researched this immensely is that they will come into a place with peace in mind and portray themselves as people of peace however when the opportunity finally presents himself what they truly believe will come into play and then war will begin in other words what they are saying and what they are doing are not the same thing what you believe will 100 percent come to light in the moment that you are faced with the decision It's no different than anything else. These Christians in Afghanistan, knowing that being a believer of Christ, willingly laying down their life for that, is a possibility. Is it a possibility here? Yeah, but it's pretty minuscule. But they know that. And yet they're willingly doing it. Why? Because they knew the cost before they stepped into it. I guarantee you, if people were standing there lining up Christians today, holding a gun to their head, saying, renounce Christ or I'm going to kill you, a good number would. They would renounce Christ. 
It's no different. We talked about in Smyrna where they had to pinch the incense. No big deal. We'll just do it. We don't really mean it, but we're just doing it. Why? To save our lives. But our lives don't belong to us is what I'm getting at. Is that we've got to get back to this understanding of what does a Christian look like? What do they talk like? How does this belief system impact every aspect and every phase of our lives? We act different. We talk different. Or at least we should. There should be a distinction between us and the world. You know, I have had people for years. For years. I've been in ministry for over 20 years, okay? Even when I was in high school, I was very, very active in ministry. I, I recognized the calling. I didn't know what it was, but I recognized the calling very early in my uh, teenage years that there was something that the Lord was doing through me, and so I was very active, involved. I did everything in the church. I mean, if they needed chairs moved, I was there. We hung sheetrock. We cleaned bathrooms. We did whatever. We were there. It was just how I was raised. And so you just kind of went and you did, and I've been a part of the good times and the bad times, and I've seen them both. And yet, here we are today, and we're asking this question, okay, what, how does this impact our lives? And the truth is, is that what we believe dictates how we act. I've used this analogy, but if you don't believe in gravity, you have no problem jumping out of an airplane. Because what will happen? You'll just float. That belief will impact your life. Muslims die today believing what? That when they die in a jihad type thing, that they will ascend into heaven and receive their 70 virgins. Now, people will lay down their lives for a lie only if they believe it is true. They will not lay down their lives for a lie they know is not true. It's much like the apostles. They all died a martyr's death dealing with the resurrection of Jesus. If that was not true, if they had not watched him die, watched him get put in the grave, and then watched him alive again, they would not have willingly laid down their life. If they made it up, stole the body, all the different theories that are out there, they would not have done that. See, Christianity today is based off of what we know is true. Truth is what matters in everything. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and all things have become new. So, here's the question. Is that true? Is it true that we are a new creation? And if it's true that we are a new creation, what are the expectations of that? Have you ever planted an apple tree expecting oranges to grow? I hope not. You don't plant corn hoping for a soybean harvest. In other words, the fruit that is in you is what will exemplify and come out when the time comes. And the further that we go down this path, the more we'll start to realize that how I respond in these situations is where I am in my walk with the Lord. If I respond in a positive way, a biblical way, this is where I am in my faith walk. If I respond in a carnal way, this is where I am in my faith walk. And we grow through both of them. But we have to start at the beginning. So understanding this, who is Jesus, how we know about him, and what we know about him. We get all of that from Scripture. Now, I showed you this last week, and we, or in the last couple of weeks, I should say, that you could recreate all the doctrines of Jesus that we have if the Bible ceased to exist today. The impact on culture different literature that is out there, ancient writings, all of this stuff, you could rebuild almost every aspect of Jesus' life through other sources outside of Scripture. But in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, it says, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, at His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort, with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap for up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, and do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now this is written to the pastor of Ephesus, a 50,000 member church at one point, a church that doesn't exist anymore. But he tells him to do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. What is he warning him? About these people that are going to create a teacher, they'll find them that will basically justify whatever it is that they want to believe, want to do. We see that today. In Romans chapter 16, verse 7, says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. You know what simple means? I don't want to say it, but it basically means dumb. 
they're simple. In other words, they, we call it dumb, but they're just easily swayed. Why? Because they have a childlike faith. And they believe from an authoritative source. And what happens is that these people come in and they talk good. You know, let me give you an example. If you were uh, churches, this is how they do things a lot of times. They're looking for a new pastor. They'll pick three or four candidates they want, and they'll bring them in and decide, okay, which one do we like more? You know what they're deciding on? How good a preacher is he? That's really what it comes down to most of the time. Because people can be swayed very easily by somebody who is a good orator. Not necessarily somebody who is called, somebody who is gifted, and perhaps somebody who the Lord wants to pastor that church, but because he's a good speaker, they can get easily swayed. And I have seen churches divide and split over that very thing. Because being the best speaker does not mean you are the best qualified. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, it says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent and be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things that are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. So what is he saying? Paul wrote these things, but people are twisting those writings, just like they have done with all the other scripture, to fit a narrative that they want, and people are falling for it. And he is saying, now listen, don't be like them. Beware of them. You know ahead of time that this is going to happen, so you be on guard. Why is he telling them that? So they'll be on guard, so that they are prepared, so that they know what on earth is going on, and when they hear false doctrine, a red flag goes up and like, no, 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 I don't believe that. That goes contrary to Scripture. Let's look at another one. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. In latter times, some will depart. And what are they being deceived by? Spirits and demons. And it's not just demons, but the doctrine of demons. In other words, the teaching. And where do those teachings get exemplified out of? People. We should be picking up on this trend. Let's look at another one. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. I marvel that you turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Now, again, what's the trend? People are coming, teaching things that are contrary to God, and people are falling for it. Fair enough. Is it, is it complicated? What is the source that all of these people are using? Every one of these teachings, whether it be Paul, Peter, whoever we're reading, what is the source of the goodness and character of God that we know is true? It is the Scripture every single time. But we have allowed this to be taken and picked apart, and we don't even understand where it comes from, how it got here. We don't even understand what it is. Some treat this as just another book. Some treat this almost like an idol, and they'll bow down and worship this. But if you understand that this is just a collection of writings of people that were inspired by God, led by the Holy Spirit, and has endured all of time, this wasn't collaborated together, and a bunch of guys said, hey, you know what we need to do? We need to write a book. That'll be good. Then I have something to follow. That's not how that worked. But when you begin to understand that, it starts to look a little bit different. Let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Oh, that you would bear with me a little folly. Indeed, you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest have somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Now these are interesting words because he said, I have betrothed you to one husband. You being whom? The church in Corinth. The husband being whom? Jesus. 
It is the son and his bride. And as a chaste virgin, because that's how it worked back then. It's a little different today, it seems, but this is how it worked back then. And so he betrothed them, and he's saying, now, you be watchful, because just like Eve was deceived by the serpent, your minds might be corrupted from the simplicity of Christ. Who made it complex? Not Paul. Not God. Verse 5, for I consider that I am not at all in fear of the most eminent apostles, even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge. But we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you. And so I will keep myself. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from the boasting that the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows. But what I do, I will also continue to do. That I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. For such are false apostles deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. So now, we read these last week, and we read them again this week, and what are we seeing? We are seeing that there are going to be people that will rise up, and they will present a gospel, a Jesus, a ministry, or something. That looks good, and it sounds good, and it feels good. And then there's going to be a certain group of people who like what they say, and so they will adopt that belief, and they will raise these people up and present them and like, listen to this guy, he's great. Listen to this gal, she's great. Because she doesn't talk about the judgmental Jesus, it's just the compassionate, loving Jesus who loves you any old way that you are. And the reason that that can happen is because we have gotten away from the foundation of where our knowledge of who Jesus is comes from. We have gotten away from the idea of what Scripture is. You think about this. If you eliminate Scripture, your ideas of God are grounded in nothing but your opinion. That is scary. Because you know what they say about opinions? They're like armpits. Everybody has them, some of them stink. We have to get back to understanding the foundation of which our beliefs are based upon. They're not based upon anything that we just want to believe. Do you realize how inconvenient it is to be a Christian in America today? You know how much more convenient it would be if it was true that all roads lead to God. It doesn't matter what you believe. That'd be way easier, wouldn't it? You go do whatever you want. You be whatever you want. You say whatever you want. You act however you want. You drink whatever you want. You sleep with whatever you want. Life is good. Jesus loves you. It's all glorious. The problem is that's not true. And the warning to these people that that Paul and Peter and these other guys have written, and there's more verses than just what I gave you, is that these people are going to come and may have already been there. And yeah, they sound good, and maybe they're good speakers. But the truth is not in them. It all comes back to truth. So I read you this quote last week. I'm going to read it again. This is from Richard Dawkins. We know him. He wrote the book called The God Delusion. This comes out of The God Delusion. Here's the quote. It says, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, uh, pestilential, megalomaniacal, uh, my goodness, saddle, sadomasochistic. You know, I, I do rehearse these. I, I have said these words before. Capriciously malevolent bully. Now, what did he just make a distinction between? The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. He's making a clear line in the sand. Now, if you knew nothing about the Bible and you read a quote by one of the smartest men, and that could be argued, on the planet, right, what would you think? Oh, that's probably true. Probably true. Here's another one. As I told you this week, last week, this, one, this quote comes from one of the people that uh, is in ministry. It says, at the risk of sounding critical, it remains a sad reality that the Bible Society chose to combine the Old and New Testaments into one single book. This single decision has caused widespread confusion within the ranks of believers throughout the world. Many of the writings in the Bible before the cross portray God to be a harsh, cruel being, 
set on destroying and punishing people if they dare to disobey the set of moral standards represented by the Ten Commandments and the other laws. Do you realize that some of these quotes and things like that, not only will you find them out in the secular world, but you'll also find them in seminaries today? There was a Christian school in Nebraska that was teaching such a thing. Christian college, no longer there anymore, but it was at one point. And you start to think, like, well, why on earth? Why, why would they even be? Why are they saying these things? You know that that's not true. Do you know why people fall for this? It's because we have no idea. What are we taught growing up? We read all the New Testament, and we read the majors, the Jonah and the whale. Yeah, David and Goliath. Things like that. And we make them out to be nothing more than fairy tale type stories that have a moral point to be made, instead of reading them as if, wait a minute, this is an event that took place, and there was a purpose to it. And if you're just doing a, a circumstary reading of, of the Old Testament, you begin to get this idea that maybe God's kind of mad, and there's not a lot of compassion. And these ideas are not new, because I showed you this guy last week, Marcion. He came up with this thing called Marcionism. I think I got a picture of him. Do I have a picture of him? Maybe? There he is. He lived in, uh, from 85 A.D. to 160 A.D. He was labeled a heretic. It was, he had a sect of Gnosticism. I think I got a couple quotes of his up here. I think. Do I? There we go. This is what he said. The God of the Old Testament, he was a worker of evils, delighting in wars, inconsistent in judgment, and self-contradictory. See, he made a distinction between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. Here's another one. Jesus came from the Father who is above the God that made the world, and Christ destroyed the prophets and the law and all the works of that God who, were made, who made the world. Now, stop for just a moment. When we begin to look at this, he's saying that there is a difference. He called it the Demiurge, was the God of the Old Testament, the Creator God, the not all-knowing God, because he didn't even know where Adam was in the garden. So he didn't know everything. But the God of the New Testament, which sent Jesus, his Son, was greater than that God, and he destroyed the law and the prophets. Is that true? Is it true that there are two separate gods? No, there's not. Jesus was the creator God. Tells us that. But in order to get to that conclusion, he had to have a previously held belief. He took that belief and applied it to the writings that were of the New Testament. What did he do? I told you last week. He accepted most of Paul's writing, but he would edit them. He rejected all of the Gospels, including Revelation as well, except for Luke, and he heavily edited Luke. And he had Paul, ten of Paul's writings, and he, this is what he said. Somebody must have edited these because Paul believed that it was law under the Old Testament and grace in the New. So therefore, we're going to get the unedited version where it's all peace, love, and lollipops. Does that sound like anything that we're seeing today? Absolutely. And we've allowed it to happen because we don't even know what it is. Who's faulted it if you do not have knowledge on a subject? should be pointing at yourself like Yoli just did. Yoli's on top of it. She knows everything. She knows most things. The thing is, is that it's our fault, but what do we do? We accept whatever is said from this pulpit, whatever is said on TV, whatever is said online, we're just like, oh, it must be true because they're an authoritative source. Do you realize that authorities can be wrong? Do you realize that all medical advice that comes from somebody who's a doctor is not necessarily good advice? Do you realize that the doctor that barely made it through med school and got the worst possible passing grade has the same distinction as a doctor as the one who was the top of his class? If you're the dumbest doctor in the room, you're still a doctor. We see this all over the place. And this idea of an Old Testament God of law and a New Testament God of love is not new because here's Rob Bell. As I told you guys last week, he wrote a book called uh, Love Wins many, many years ago. He was a pastor in Michigan. He's been labeled a heretic by most of the church today. That's Brian Zahn from down in St. Joe. Once a very powerful, charismatic preacher, one who loved God, had a very powerful ministry, has gone in this same direction. That there's a distinction between the Old Testament God and this New Testament Jesus. And what happened was, is that the Old Testament writers were writing their perception of who God was, but we truly see who it is in the New Testament. So in other words, we reject the Old Testament, because it's not really what it is. 
So as I drew this last week, as you can see, if we went from creation to the birth of Christ, it's approximately 4,000 years. And that 4,000 years spans a lot of events and a lot of times, and the Bible does not capture every single story that took place. It's got different parts. But we see one part where God is telling Abraham, listen, you're going to go and your people are going to go in this land, but they're going to be held up in Egypt for about 400 years because the time of the Amalekites is not complete. The sin was not complete. There was going to be a judgment when they came. But they had 400 years, and what would happen? If they repent, they'd be fine. And then you got Jonah, who was sent to Nineveh, and he didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew that God's judgment was coming upon them, and they wanted him, they wanted that judgment to fall on them. They were terrible people. And if he went and they repented, that God would hold back his hand and not bring judgment on them. So he didn't want to go. And that's exactly what happened. He went, they repented. God withheld his judgment. That sounds like grace and mercy to me. You can find this throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. We're not going to rehash all of that stuff. But we talked about this timeline of being about 4,000 years, and then you get from the birth of Jesus to basically the end of Revelation, which is approximately 100 years. So in other words, it's a minuscule time. Nothing. So you got lots of, of, of judgments that were going on here, and you don't have much going on here because it's 100 years. But we know that judgment came because Jesus prophesied that the temple would be destroyed as judgment from God for the fact that they did not recognize their Messiah when he came, and they were supposed to. They should have. It wasn't that they didn't recognize him. I shouldn't even say that. It's that they chose not to recognize him. It wasn't ignorance. It was they didn't want him there. And that judgment happens in 70 A.D., which tells us that most of the New Testament was written before because somebody would have written down the fulfillment of that prophecy. So judgment took place, we just don't see it because it's such a short timeline. It's kind of like now, we can go back and read about the events that took place in America in the early history of it, we're a couple hundred years removed from it. But in the moment, they probably didn't see it. Do you guys realize that like the Great Awakenings and stuff like that, these revivals that took place in America, during the time frame, they didn't even realize what was happening? It was years later that it gets labeled the Great Awakenings in these revivals because they're looking back like, this was happening everywhere. They were surprised. So I said this last week, I'm going to say it again. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. In other words, that we see in the Old Testament a concealing of that grace, love, and mercy through Messiah that's coming in the New. But the New Testament is kind of like a writing that gives us an understanding of some of the parts of the Old Testament that were complicated. Revelation itself refers to the Old Testament over 800 times. You don't understand the Old Testament, you won't understand what is going on in Revelation. And because of that, we are basically got a house built on sand because the foundation of our New Testament beliefs is from the Old Testament. And so as we get into this, we've got to understand one thing. Why are we at this point today? We're at this point because we have allowed things to take place. Let me show you something. First Corinthians chapter 10. I know this is a lot of rehash, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page. Start at verse 1. It says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So we see him referring to the time of Moses in the going through the wilderness time frame. Okay? Verse 6. Now, these things became our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Do not become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in this one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now, what is he showing us? He is showing us that all the things that are written in this Old Testament passage and talking about the Israelites specifically were written so that we could see them as examples. You guys catch that? Don't do this like they did. You'd be different. Don't fall for this like they did. You'd be different. That is the foundation of those beliefs. The idea of lusting came from that Old Testament like they did. Don't do that. Idolatry 
came from that Old Testament, don't do that. You'd be different. Sexual immorality, the whole thing. They were written for our admonition. Romans chapter 15, verse 1. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we might through, pa- through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant to you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see again, whatever was written before was written for our learning so that through the scriptures our patience and our understanding will grow and that we have hope in what God will do. So now there's two different passages looking to what? The Old Testament is the foundation of our beliefs. Do you guys get that? You guys with me? Because we have to get this today. We think that those are for people who believe things that are contrary to scripture only. In other words, that there is one God, he has a son named Jesus, that he was a sacrificial lamb given as a Passover offering, and people are rejecting that, and therefore you can, they think they can live how they want, and they get to God any way they want, even though that's contrary to Scripture. That is how we think of it. But the church today may believe in the big truths like I just described, but we've accepted the small lies. Let me say that again. The church today has accepted and believed in the big truths, the salvation all of those types of things, the big doctrinal type things. But the little things we've accepted as small lives. Look at how we have just begun to digress as time goes on. Do you realize at one point it was considered a sin to even have a TV in your home because there was nothing good? But now it's like, well, you know, that's not so bad. I can deal with it. We have, we're like the frog in the pot getting cooked slowly. We've allowed these things to creep in. I told you this uh, a few weeks ago, but we've allowed the arguments to be put on their level instead of staying scripturally. Because what do we say? Is that sex is between one man and one woman. But that's not what scripture says. It says sex is between a husband and a wife only. Anything outside of that is considered fornication. We have, without even realizing it, we have taken the argument over to their level. We have now gotten away from Scripture. Because it's not just one man and one woman, any man and any woman. It is the husband of one wife and that alone. You guys see? That's just one example, but we could do this all day. And why does that happen? That happens because we are not on guard. Look at Genesis chapter 3. I know we've read some of these before. I want to read them again. Verse 1, it says, The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now, I've argued this before and I've showed some of you guys, and if anybody wants to see it afterwards, I can tell you about it. But the serpent was not a snake. They're not a talking snake in my opinion, okay? This is a title of, of Lucifer, of the devil, whatever you want to call him. And he comes, he was cunning, and he says to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, what's he doing? He is contradicting and questioning what God has said. Now, at this point, what passage of the Bible could Eve turn to? None. She just asked God, God, is that what you said? Well, different times. So he's questioning this. She's standing here. It's like, well, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you should not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, he never said they shouldn't touch it. Adam may have told her that. Just stay away from it. Don't even go near it. But she responded basically with what God had said. Add a little bit, a little stricter rule. The serpent comes back. You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what happens? He begins to make an argument, a counter argument. That, well, that's not true. That's not what God said. Because he knows what will happen. He doesn't want you to be like him. Now, the proper response is what? No, no, I don't think so. This is what he said. Verse 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, and she took of his fruit and ate. And she also gave her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So she allowed that statement to play in her mind, and she considered. She saw it was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and it was desirable to make one wise. She allowed that to play around a little bit. 
How long did that take? We don't know. But we know what happened. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, we see this is the temptation of Jesus. Again, we read this last week, but there's three temptations, okay? Verse 1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted for 40 days and nights, he was, afterward he was hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now he's questioning who he is. Jesus answered, said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The devil took him up in the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And again the devil took him up on a seedingly high mountain and showed him all the kings of the world and the glory. And he said, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, Away with you, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The devil left him. Behold, angels came and ministered to him. Now, what's going on here? What's happening here is Jesus being confronted with three different things. This is, there's a deeper thing that's happening here in Matthew chapter 4. But all of these things are close back to the Exodus event where they are going through the wilderness and all of this stuff. And this is where the Israelites failed. It's kind of like a supernatural undoing of where the Israelites fail, Jesus gets it right. And every time a temptation came, how did he respond? He responded with, the scripture said. The scripture said. The scripture said. Now that works great. But what was the counter argument he made in the second one? He says, well, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written. And he quotes him two psalms. And what did Jesus have to do? He said, whoa, 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 whoa. It is written. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. What's happening here is the devil is using scripture to bring the temptation. He's using an argument there. Now, for most of us, we may fall for that because it still happens today. You might be reading something. You may get this thought in your head. You're like, wait a minute. This verse doesn't mean this. It means that. And you start to go down this playground. And, and this, you get all off into the weeds and all of that. You see, he used the same thing against us that we use as a guard. Because it always comes back to the scriptures say. And the reason for that is because this is where God has put in the truth of, of the knowledge of who he is. This is how we know it. There's no other way to know it. Outside of Scripture being the foundation for the doctrinal beliefs of the church today, it is merely a matter of opinion. That's all it is. You see, this is what was going on then. This is what is going on now. And we see warnings of this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it's verse 1. You guys are familiar with this passage. I, Paul... Myself and pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence by which I intend to be bold against some, who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapon of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So what does he say? Verse 4. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Carnal being flesh. Carnal of this world. The way that we respond to anything that comes against us is not from a carnal place, but from a biblical place, a spiritual place. That no matter what happens, we respond back to the truth of what Scripture holds. Now, he says that they're not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down stronghold, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against what? It's the knowledge of God. You see, the devil tempted Jesus with something that would be contrary to the knowledge of God. They just cast yourself down because, hey, he gives his angels charge over you. Throw yourself off, no big deal. That probably would not have ended well. But it takes that knowledge. See, there are things that are strongholds that are coming against the knowledge of God. Arguments that come against the knowledge of God. High things that exalt itself against the knowledge of God. What is the knowledge of God? Who He is, what He's done, and our relationship to Him. And these are the way the enemy attacks against this, and it comes into what? What do we do? How do we counter this? You bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. 
You see, if Eve had taken the argument that the serpent made, he's like, no, 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 no. While that tree might look good, God said no. So what I want doesn't matter because God said no. We'd be a lot better off, wouldn't we? I mean, one of us probably would have screwed it up anyway, but, but it would have been a different. Imagine if Jesus had not responded the way that he had. First of all, it would mean he wasn't Messiah. But secondly, things would be different, wouldn't they? You see, it comes back to bringing every thought into captivity. But what do we do? We get emotional about it. We're not led by the Spirit. We're led by emotions. We're not led by what we know. We're led by what we feel. Hosea chapter 4, this is a very, very well-known verse. It says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And that's where we stop. But the second part is the truth. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will reject you from being a priest for me because you have forgotten the law of your God. I will also forget your children. Why did they have a lack of knowledge? Because they rejected it. It wasn't that it wasn't available. It was the fact that they refused to accept it as truth. And people have rejected the truth of Scripture today. The truth about God today. Because they would rather have a comforting lie that makes them feel good. Or they would rather just wallow in their sorrow and their pity and just be like, Oh, but you don't understand what I've been through. The trauma that I've experienced. And listen, I'm compassionate towards that. But Scripture says to get over it. Because you are a new creation. Don't live like that old man, but we just have a hard time with it because we don't want to. Some people enjoy being victims. They enjoy being sick because they get the attention that they want. But that's not what Scripture says. You see, when I sit down and counsel somebody, whatever's going on, whether it be a couple, it doesn't make any difference. The first thing I do when we sit down, I lay this on my desk or the table or wherever we happen to be. Sometimes we go and sit at a restaurant or go have a cup of coffee. I said, do you agree that this is the final authority in our life. And what it says goes. And if they say yes, that means that we're going to follow this and what it says go. And even if I tell you something that doesn't feel good and you don't like it, as long as it comes from this, you can't be mad at me because you're being confronted with truth. You can be mad at me if I say it like a jerk or if it's just my opinion or whatever. But you can't be mad at me for simply telling you what this says. And if they say no... I don't accept this as the final authority. Then I say, good luck to you. And I'm done. I didn't used to do that. I used to try to get them all and play with the emotions and try to help them and all of that. And you know what I found out? It never worked. Because people who are not willing to accept something higher than their own thought life and their own emotions as the foundation of the beliefs I realized years ago are not willing to do what's necessary to come out of whatever rut they happen to be in. And so because of that, I'm not doing you any good. All I'm doing is you're coming to me with your problems and I'm making you feel better about it in the moment. But by the end of the day, you'll be right back where you were. And that's not what I'm here to do. You see, what happens a lot of times is people will come to me looking for help. We go through this process. Yes, Scripture's our guide. Great. Here's what it says. You have to do these things. And they'll start to do these things. Because it's not my opinion. It's what Scripture says. And things start to get better. And you know what happens? We just stop getting together. They kind of disappear. Why? The crisis is at least over for the moment. So I no longer need you, and I don't need the Bible, and I don't need this prayer time and all of that. I've got this. And you know what happens more times than not? They end up right back where they were. I was counseling a young man not all that long ago. He and his wife split up. He had a porn problem. He was coming. We're getting him help. We're working through these things. Got things were getting better with his wife. He disappeared. I'd call him up, hey man, what's going on? He's like, oh yeah, I haven't forgotten, just been busy, yada, yada, yada. But he's like, things are going really good right now. I said, I'm telling you, things are good now, but things won't be good forever. Sure enough, problems existed again. They got divorced. There wasn't much I could do. Because he ghosted correction. He just decided, okay, it's better. Problem's over. I can solve it. I had a young lady when I was going to Bible school. Okay? This is a very simple solution. Let's see if you can figure this one out. I may have told you this story, but I'm going to tell you again because I like my stories. But we were good friends with this lady. And, uh, um, you know, we're all going to Bible school and we're all, getting, and we're all just, you know, getting by. We're, none of us are getting rich. We're just, you know, 
you got to pay for school, you got to pay rent, you got to do all that stuff. And she came up to me one day, she said, hey, I've just been in a real bad spot financially, but can you just pray for me? My rent is due, I don't have the money. Can you pray that God will send the money for me? I said, my goodness, absolutely. You know, I'm assuming something has happened, whatever. And, and I was just getting ready to pray. I said, where do you work at? She's like, oh, I don't work. When we get done with class, I go home and pray and study the scriptures. I'm like, I don't need to pray for you. I need to drive you around and help you pick up applications. Now, that went over like a turd in a punch bowl. But it was true. Like, I'm, I'm happy you want to pray and read the Bible, but you still have responsibilities you have to take care of. That doesn't, if, if you don't work, you don't eat according to scripture. You know what I'm saying? Like, but this is where we are. Because we have an arrogance in the body of Christ today. Is that we are uncorrectable. If you try to correct somebody who has gone contrary to Scripture, whether they're caught in their emotions or whatever the case may be, like crisis happens, real crisis happens. But how do we respond? We deal with the emotions immediately. Then we begin to take every thought captive. And then we lean on what the Word of God says. Right, Leslie? I mean, what she went through, what Neil went through, what the family went through, some people would fold. And he'd be like, forget this, I don't need this, it is what it is. But she stood up, got past the emotion, and said, no, i got to stand on the word. Because it is true. And whatever else is going on, that's not what God said. And he's standing here, well, sitting, today. I mean, how grateful are we that they are here with us, that we got to see that, that we found a family that was strong enough to stand on the convictions of the word of God, and we watched them come through it. Praise the Lord. But our arrogance has led us to be uncorrectable. And the reason for this is the biggest adherence to discovering truth is to assume that you've already found it. When you think you've got it all figured out and you've learned all there is to learn, you are no longer teachable. And this happens all the time. You know where it happens? You see it a lot. It's guitar players. Kind of a dumb example. But they get to a certain level and then... They're like, man, I can play some songs. Like, I'm good. I don't need to practice anymore. You know how I know that? It's because I'm an authority on that. I get asked all the time, like, man, can you teach me to play this, this wicked guitar solo? And my response is, no, because I don't know how to do that. But I can play those four chords over and over again. I can teach you those. That's how we've become, is we've no longer teachable because we've assumed that we found it. We believe whatever doctrine is out there because we have not studied the scriptures. We've accepted a truth that is contrary to scripture. We get moved by our emotions. We think we put God in this box. We're like, okay, God's got this, whatever. You know what we called those people during Jesus' time? We called them Pharisees because it wasn't a lack of knowledge. They rejected truth. The truth was, is that Jesus was there, right there, the moment he was on this earth as Messiah. Every sign was there that he was Messiah. And they refused to declare, even tried to kill the evidence of it. It wasn't a lack of knowledge. It was they rejected truth. When confronted with the truth that contradicted what they already believed, they went to great lengths to squash it. And that is what we do. I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. And I've, I've made people happy, and I've made people mad. And realistically, I'm not trying to do either one of those things. I'm just trying to stay with what Scripture says. You guys have heard me say this before, that it doesn't matter what is said from this pulpit, whether it be from me or somebody else. If it doesn't line up with Scripture, you need to throw it out. But we've already accepted a cursory understanding of Scripture, and we just run with it. We love those verses that you can throw on a pillow, a picture on your wall, a tattoo, whatever. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. If that were true, I'd be a lot better golfer. And I am not a better golfer. But that's how we treat it. In Acts chapter 17, I want you to see this. Now, I've, I've alluded this passage before, but I'm going to read it here. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis... Amphipolis, said that backwards, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, let's stop. Where's Thessalonica? It's the place where the Thessalonians lived. Paul wrote to them a couple of times. Maybe you've read it. Okay? And then the synagogue of the Jews. What is a synagogue? Because we don't want to leave anything unturned. Synagogues came into being after the time of the exile. Ezra set these things up. There were places where people who couldn't easily get over to the temple was basically had to have 10 
Jewish men to come together, create a synagogue. We would call it a church. It's kind of like what it was. But it was a place where they would pray, they would meet, there was teaching, there was all this stuff going on. And Paul, when he got to Thessalonica, what does he do? He goes to the synagogue. Verse 2, then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now, stop. Three Sabbaths is what? A three-week span. Every Friday night, Saturday night, was a Sabbath. He'd go in there, and what did he do? He argued with them from the Scriptures. What did he not do? Argue with them from his opinion. It doesn't even allude to the fact that he was telling his testimony. Hey, let me tell you what happened to me. I'm just walking down, minding my business. Bright light comes, blinds me, says, hey, I'm Jesus. And guess what? Jesus is real. No, he argued with them from the Scriptures for three weeks, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Now, stop. Many believed. What did he do? He had to explain to them that Christ had to suffer and he had to rise from the dead. We're talking about Isaiah 52 and 53. Why did he have to explain that to them? Because the belief had been accepted that when Messiah came, he was a political figure who would now take over. They'd no longer be under the power of Rome. And the idea of the suffering servant and the reigning king was not one Messiah coming twice. They had accepted that the suffering servant was the nation of Israel themselves. And because of all that they had went through, that Isaiah was writing about them. But when Messiah came, he's taking over. And Jesus can't be Messiah because he was killed. So what is Paul doing? He's making a case that the thing that you had believed was wrong. Even though you claim that it came from Scripture, you were taught this by other rabbis, it is wrong. Jesus is the Christ. Some believed. But verse 5, the Jews who were not persuaded, that means some didn't. What happens? They became envious. What happens when you become envious? Nothing good. They're jealous of the response that Paul is getting. So he, they took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, they set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king. Jesus. Now let's stop for a second. What's happening? They've gotten the whole city in an uproar. And they're saying that Jason has allowed these people to come in. And these people are making declaration that there's another king besides Caesar. They're going against the decrees of Caesar. Now, is that true? No. That is not the declaration they were making. Because Jesus himself said, my kingdom is not of this world. However, they have said that. It's like we're going along with what the government says regardless of what Scripture says. And they're using that against us. It's the same thing they try to capture Jesus on. And they troubled the crowds and the rulers of the city, verse 8, when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Do you know what that means? They took money from them. They allowed Jason and those there to pay their way out. Wasn't that nice of them? Verse 10. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Okay? Now what about we know about Berea? They have Bereans. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. So they do the exact same thing. So here was a city of people trying to kill Paul and trying to kill Silas and anybody associated with them, right? And Paul left and he went to Berea. What's the first thing he did? He's back on mission. What do we do? We hide. Let's go on. Verse 11. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Now, this is a big distinction. Because Paul comes into the synagogue. He declares that Jesus is the Christ. He gives the same argument that he gave in Thessalonica. But these people, they're like, okay, Paul, you've made your case. Let's go back and let's search the scriptures to see if what Paul said is correct. What was the outcome? Verse 12. Therefore, many of them believed, 
and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. So it worked out really well for them. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. So it wasn't enough that they got him out of their city. They had to go to another city where that message was being preached. But what did they do? They didn't just accept what Paul said as true. They took the argument, applied it to Scripture, and came to the conclusion is, he's absolutely right. The difference between the Bereans and the Thessalonians is they realized that maybe we haven't discovered truth yet. Maybe our previously held beliefs was incorrect. And they allowed Scripture, not Paul's argument, sway them. You guys see the difference? It's a big difference. Because that's the problem we have today. We have to choose how we respond when we are confronted with the truth of Scripture. We can be moved by truth, or we can be moved by our emotions. We can be moved by truth, or we can be moved by our circumstances. But the method to overcome all of this is always the same. It is understanding what God has said in every situation, going back to the foundation of what we believe. And the reason we believe it is because it is clearly laid out in Scripture. It's not because I heard some preacher say it one time. It's not because I read it somewhere. It's not because this book says it, this online article says it. It doesn't matter. It's because what does Scripture say? And what Scripture says is that your mind is the devil's playground. Romans chapter 8, verse 6 says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There's a distinction between carnally minded and spiritually minded. We would say it like this. Your emotions lie to you. And the circumstances, although they may be grave, there's a promise on a way out. There's a guarantee from the Father. We live on this land, not over here. We're not on this roller coaster of emotions every time something happens or the wind blows or whatever. My husband makes me mad. My wife makes me mad. My kids are brats. I'm going to sell them, trade them in, get new ones. These kids are terrible. It means that I'm going to be moved by what God has said. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world. So this world is different than the world that God refers to. The world that God refers to is where we are new creations. This world, we should not be conformed, but be transformed. How do we do that? We renew our mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So what do you do? You're transformed by the renewing of your mind. For what reason? Because then you can prove what is good. Then you can prove what is acceptable. Then you can prove what is perfect. What are we, our mind renewed with? It comes back to that foundation. That and that alone. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, let's stop. What are we supposed to be anxious about? Nothing, not a thing. There's no things that we should be anxious about. If you're letting anxiety drive your life, you are allowing anxiety to you to be your God. Everybody has anxiety. Some of us have it worse than others. The truth is, is this is what God says. But everything by what? Prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. What things? All the things. So we're not to be anxious about anything. We are to pray about everything. And the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, which is 100% accurate if you've ever been in a real crisis situation, it sometimes doesn't make sense why there's peace. It will guard your hearts and what else? Your mind in Christ Jesus. But it goes on, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Now let's look at this. What does he say? What's true? Honorable. Just. Pure. Lovely. Commendable. Excellent. 
anything praiseworthy to think about those things. This goes back to the mind. This is the idea of taking captive thought, not allowing your circumstances to dictate the way you think and act and believe, but allow the truth of God to dictate how you think and act and believe. And then he goes on. What you have learned and what you have received and what you have heard and what you have seen in what? Him. This is Paul speaking. Practice these things. In other words, he was living his life in a way that they got to see him. Do you realize it wasn't all sunshine and lollipops for Paul? That this book was written from a prison? This isn't a cutesy prison. This isn't like cable and air conditioning prison. This is basically a cistern toilet where you had no food. And if your family did not bring you anything, you just starved to death. Because they didn't really believe in jail and holding people. That jail was just a place that you kind of went until they gave you the death penalty. And Paul's writing it from these. And so what you've learned and what you've received and what you've heard and what you've seen in me, you can practice these things and that God of peace will be with you. You practice what you've watched me do. You know what we call that? Discipleship. When you're being discipled, you should be able to look at that person and say, I'm going to be like that. Paul says, you follow me as I follow Christ. All of us should have somebody in our lives that has learned and received and heard and seen the truth of Scripture in my life and be an example to those around us. Unfortunately, that's not where we are. Unfortunately, the church today is just as moved by the economy and the circumstances of the world and the emotions and all the things that are going on in our lives. We go into crisis mode. We respond carnally. We respond the exact same way they do. So why would anybody think that they aren't a Christian when they act and talk and behave the same way those in the church do today? You guys seeing this? You guys see how there's a muddying of the water between the church and the world? As Israel was to be separated from all the other nations, the body of Christ is to be separated from the world. There's a distinction made there, and we're not there because we've allowed ourselves to not be there. It's not a lack of knowledge. It's a refusal to study and accept as truth. We don't turn to Scripture as our guide. We turn to Scripture as our convenience. We find verses that make us feel better in the moment instead of living in a perpetual foundational understanding and growth in Scripture saying, no, this will be my guide. That's why we never fear death, no matter what's going on, whether it be a virus or a war. There's they're very likely a war that's going to break out here very soon. And it may come onto this soil. And what should we fear? Nothing. Because if we go, where do we go? We're good. We have nothing to worry about. And we know that even if all crisis breaks out and they just, like, it's just you know, Thunderdome out there, and every man from us, Hunger Games, or pick whatever movie reference you want. I tried to get one for us older folks and one for the younger folks, all right? But whatever movie reference you want, no matter what's out there, God is our source. He's our provider. He supplies all of our needs. So some of us probably need to learn to garden. But you guys keep bringing us vegetables, so we don't have to, so I appreciate that. We've got to get back to the foundations. We have allowed the church today and our own lives to get away from the truth of Scripture and get into the truth of what feels good. And we are no different than all of those people that Paul and Peter warned about. We've allowed that slick talk and we've allowed our emotions to be gravitate towards these people that make us feel better of our circumstances. We can't be like that. We need to be a little harder. We need to be a little tougher. We need to be a little thicker skin because we know greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And no matter what's going on, we will rise above. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that it's true. And we thank you that it is the guide of our lives. And that in all things that we can believe you and trust you and know that you have given us everything that we could possibly need. And that you are equipping us for all things to do the work of the ministry that you have called us to do. And Lord, today, I ask that you just put a fire in our belly and a burden in our heart that we will grow and rise above. No matter how long we've been walking with the Lord, Lord, if we have not been growing at the pace that we need to, I thank you that you will convict us of that. And that conviction will come through your scripture, Lord, and I thank you that we will not just arbitrarily set it aside, but we will deal with those problems. And we will rise above. And I thank you, Lord, that in everything that is going on right now, that you are bringing couples together, husbands and wives, that they will hold each other stronger, longer, Lord. That they will raise their children in godly fear. 
that grandparents have an opportunity to pour out and that we have an opportunity in our community and the world that we live to make you known that when people hear us and they see us and the way that we respond and the way that we behave, they'll say, why are you so different? And Lord, we thank you that we have those opportunities. May we not take them for granted. May we live every day to the fullest for you. May our lives be an example of your goodness, your mercy, and grace. And Lord, I think that every day is a new opportunity. The day is no different. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done and continue to do. That you're glorified in every aspect of our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you soon.